Hi, I'm Heather Morrison. On each show, guests share stories from their lives in theater, film, and TV. So grab your tights and tap shoes and meet the geeks in the green room. My guest on this episode is James Gralian, theatrical sound engineer. Having spent most of my amateur career on stage, I was particularly interested in learning what goes on backstage with professional theater productions from the perspective of a stagehand. James's impressive career includes touring with productions of Les Mis, Annie Get Your Gun, Blue's Clues, and The Lion King. This is part one of two. Make sure to catch the second part of this interview following this one. Welcome, James Graylian, to Geeks in the Green Room. How are you today? Doing great. Yourself? I'm great. I just love your voice. <laughs> I'm putting it out there to everybody who listens to this, including my mom, who's my number one fan, as she my, should be. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's a requirement of parents, especially uh, any stage parent out there. They, exactly. they have to be they have to be your number one fan, and then at some point, if it turns, then you know you have other fans. Hopefully, by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She came to see every one of my show and some of them multiple times. She's a big fan, great supporter. Excellent. Yeah. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Here's James, everyone. James is a sound engineer, among other things. He's very creative. James started his, his interest in sound engineering or in theater a long time ago. You want to talk a little bit about your theater roots? Well, I mean, I've been an audio engineer in theater for about 30 years or so. Um, And yeah, maybe a little extra if you get, you know, with high school and stuff. Um, I know you started uh, in community theater, um, but, and I did as well. Uh, My dad, my dad grew up in Chicago and did community theater there as a kid. Um, You know, poor kind of immigrant family and had a community center where they did uh, where they did it. And then I grew up in Longmont, Colorado with my parents and my dad did community theater with Longmont Theater Company. And he always played a bad guy. He always had that. uh, Yeah, he was, you know, he's like the cop in Guys and Dolls. So, you know, he's it's that's the bad guy role. And then, you know, he he had bit parts where he always he always seemed to have a point. He always pointed at, at people. And we said he refined that at home, which I don't think he appreciated too much. What do you mean, like pointing his finger at people? Yeah, he always he always pointed at somebody. And we were like, oh yeah, he refined that. At, he 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 practiced that on us, and I, I I think that actually offended him a little bit, but it was still it was funny to us. Um, you start pointing back at him. Is that why he offended? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, actually, I mean the thing is, my dad and I. Uh, we didn't get along that great when I was growing up. I mean, like we, uh, we, we cared about each other and you know, all of that, but you know, there was just always, always all that tension and stuff. And we did, we did things together. Um, but, uh, you know, just kind of didn't get along that great. And my dad kind of in an effort to, um, kind of drive a bond between us. He took me to a set build at Longmont the- uh, theater company, the community theater. And I absolutely loved it. And I started latching onto it. Um, the first show was uh, a little night music and uh, fun show. But uh, they, so they asked me because I was, uh, I was just out of ninth grade um, for the second time. So that kind of shows you where I was at. I was, I had a very, as Tom Sachs, the uh, sculptor says, I had a very unsuccessful uh, childhood. Um, but uh, I, I, we had summer break and it was, uh, they said, Hey, would you want to, do something like this, you know, would you like to run spotlight? And I said, yeah, why not? And I had the worst shakiest hand ever. 
And uh, they were, we were, we were in rehearsal and they were pretty much going to say, Hey, this isn't working out. Um, When the guy who was running lights uh, got drunk and walked out. So yeah, this is a, this is a auspicious start at best. (laughs) So he, so they said, Hey, uh, would you like to run lights? And it was one of those um, 12 big Frankenstein switch kind of dimmers, uh, dimmer packs that sit over the stage and, you know, big, long, you know, handles that you have to deal, do. And, uh, and it was a blast. Uh, and I did that. And um, same time next year, which is, uh, pro- you know, probably not the most appropriate show for a 15 year old, but who cares? <laughs> and, uh, and I loved it. And then, um, when high, when high school started and high school for me was uh 10 11 12 not 9 through 12 but 10 through 12 uh my the city theater was the Vance Brand Auditorium which was attached to uh, my high school and because it was part of the high school the students did all the tech and did all and we didn't have a drama club we didn't have a drama class we had a tech theater class hmm. and so i was going to do lighting um uh, i was like yeah well i've started lighting i'm going to do lighting cuz i love lighting blah 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 and um the teacher came to me and said, Hey, look, um, there's a lot of kids doing lighting. We have, we have a lot, but we have one person who's a senior doing sound and she's graduating. So we need a sound person. Would you consider moving over to sound? And I said, sure, why not? And I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> and I loved it. Uh, you know, so yeah. And um, our theater, our city theater was like a 1,500 or 1,800 seat theater. I mean, it was, you know, full balcony and all of that. Um, we had the, we didn't have like the lowest of low gear, but like there was a high school across town that had better gear, but we learned a ton. Um, and you know, you, the Longmont symphony worked there, you know, it was, I mean, it wasn't like a big roadhouse or anything. Uh, the first person that I really got to run sound for there that was of interest was Della Reese, uh, the singer. Wow. Yeah. Which of course, you know, she had that great turn in, uh, uh, uh that great role in, uh, Harlem nights, uh, that movie, I don't know if you've seen that movie. I haven't uh, seen that movie. Oh, it's phenomenal. I'm writing it down, though. Eddie Murphy, uh, Red Fox. Oh, um, I remember uh, it. Oh, yeah. Richard Pryor. Uh, wow. Arsenio Hall has one of the, has a hilarious bit part. And uh, Della Reese, you know, the, the, the singer. And she, and she was great. She was so so theatrical and so Broadway and all of that and just yeah. so much fun. And so it it really hooked me. And I was like, you know. Up until then, you know, I only ever wanted to do two things. I wanted, up until then, I wanted to be a helicopter pilot, you know, because it was the 80s and we had Airwolf and Blue Thunder and all that. And so it looked really cool, you know, <laughs> as a kid, what are you going to do? And then after that, I wanted to be a sound, uh, sound tech in theater. And that was it. Wow. And that's pretty much, other than a couple of years in radio, that's what I've done. Wow. Mm-hmm. Where did you go from there after high school? Uh, so I did three years. Uh, well, I probably three and a half years of high school. I was, like I said, wildly unsuccessful as a, as a teenager. And so, um, I went to, uh, I went to Metro state college in Denver, which was kind of, uh, the, their CU Boulder and C, uh, university of Colorado was kind of the big school. And then of course there's the community college and this was somewhere in between, hmm. but they didn't have a, uh, theater program. So I was kind of doing that general communications thing. And, um, the last thing that I really needed at the time was more school. I just, I, it was not, 
what I really should have done, but I didn't know any better. Um, there was, you know, that's what you did. My sister went to college. Um, so I should be in college kind of thing, you know, made sense. And then, um, shortly after that, uh, I think I, I went for a semester and a half, but then I was working too much. Uh, I started working, doing kind of more rock and roll, um, and just as a general kind of stagehand, but as the sound guy stagehand hanging around, uh, we had this outdoor venue here called uh, Fiddler's Green. And I remember it was uh, 90, 93. I kind of started there. Uh, I, and I had some, you know, I had some assistance money wise with like my, my folks helped bail me out a little bit, you know, and at the time Denver was not nearly as expensive as it is now. So it didn't take much, but you know, uh, mm-hmm needed I, I i was not doing that great and then in 94 summer of 94 things really picked up there and uh from there i kind of i got i had a uh kind of a i kind of got found for radio for uh the tech side of things what do you um, mean by that did you mean discovered were you just kind of so i was working rock and roll and uh it was my outdoor venue, but also for a company that did some other things, some other outdoor uh, or some other rock and roll stuff. And we're doing uh, the Lodo Music Festival. Lodo here means basically lower downtown. And there was a music festival and there's a main stage call uh, that had uh, James Brown was the big headliner for it downtown. Wow. Very cool. Right. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Going to work James Brown, blah, blah, blah. And we get there and they said, hey, James, you're a sound guy. Why don't you go work second stage? And I'm like, oh. Oh, and, and what second stage, yeah, <laughs> second stage meant uh, local bands, you know, and mm. and basically I walk, it's around the corner so that, you know, main stage is facing south and this is on the east side of the building and around the corner. And I walk over there and it's basically just a couple of risers and some sound gear and they're like, have fun. And it's just me. And I'm like, oh, great. Okay. And I'm like, well, well fine, whatever. This will, you know. I'm not doing that, but I'm doing this and it's going to be great. Mm-hmm. And right next to the, right next to that stage is, uh, is, uh, the r- local radio station KBCO and they're kind of a, they're a triple a format. So, you know, at the time it was a lot of, um, uh, a whole lot, way too much of, uh, uh, Dave Matthews band, you know, but, uh, <laughs> stuff like that. And, um, mm-hmm. and they're, and they're broadcasting right next to the stage. And the problem is you got a band and then they're trying to broad, do, you know, do live broadcasts and the band's playing. And so you can't, they can't hear the studio. The studio can't really hear them on the air. Uh, they're getting upset. The bands are getting mad because they're getting told off by the radio station. Radio station's mad because they can't do their job. And so mm-hmm. I go to the radio station and I said, hey, look, let's, let's, we're stuck here. So let's, make, let's have a compromise here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bands will stop playing when you're going on the air if you let me know when you're going to go on the air but you have to mention the bands on the air. And they said, done, fine. Sounds good. So each band that came up, I, you know, since I was the only one there, I was like, Hey, here's the deal, you know, and this is, you know, this is what we got kind of set up. And the bands were like free promotion. Sure. Why not? You know, mm-hmm. this is cool. mid nineties. Cause you know, radio, radio mention meant more. Yeah. You know, we didn't have social media. We didn't have Facebook. Right. We didn't have Bandcamp. So, you know, um, so the there was two days of this, and at this end of the second day, uh, their engineer uh, came over to me and said, "Hey, man, we need a sound guy. Uh, we're moving studios. We don't. Uh, we, you know, he's like, I'm a broadcast engineer. I work on transmitters. You know, I work on component electronics. I'm not a sound person. So, can you come work for us?" And I didn't have anything else going on. I was like, "Sure, 
So I worked for him for uh, two and a half years, got to design studios, did remotes, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff that I'd never had a chance to do. And it was, it was really fun. And, um, wow. yeah. And then, uh, in 96, uh, the telecommunications act of 96 came along and this is a little inside baseball of radio, but what it meant was they deregulated the ownership rules of radio. You could only own, so up until then, you could only own four stations in, a, in any given market. And I think it was like 26 or 30 stations nationwide. And they, uh, Congress uh, passed this and it opened up ownership rules. It deregulated so you could own up to eight stations uh, na- uh, in a market and unlimited nationwide. Hmm. And the day after it passed, our crosstown rival bought us. And I was pretty much, uh, so now all of a sudden we had two engineering departments and that was right. Which I was the bottom of the the barrel on that. Um, and at that point it's like, Oh, I see the writing on the wall. I know I'm, you know, I'm not long for this world. Uh, but I was working, uh, I was picking up a little extra work, um, at a theater downtown doing always Patsy Cline when their sound guy wanted, you know, a day off. And it turned out he was leaving. And so I was like, you know what? I think it's time to get back into theater, and uh, wow. and it worked out. <laughs> Is Patsy Klein the name of a theater, or was that so? A there theater? was uh, downtown. We have a we have a, a Denver Center for the Performing Arts, and one of the theaters there is a cabaret style theater called the Galleria Theater. Uh, it, the the Denver Center. I'll, so the and then the show that was running there was always Patsy Klein. Um, so, which is basically just like a little two-person cabaret musical show about uh, Patsy Cline. And okay. so it was, it was kind of a jukebox musical before there were yeah. really many jukebox musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Denver Center has, uh, they have a theater company uh, that has four theaters. They have the Gallery of Theater. Uh, those four theaters are, like, there's one that's uh, that's kind of a more of a, a half shell kind of thing. So it's a very... Uh, it's a proscenium, but it's very wide uh, audience. Ooh. There's one that's in the round. There's a three-quarter round. And then there's a small proscenium-style show uh, theater. Mm-hmm. Then the Galleria Theater, which is 250 seats, and it's very cabaret-style, has a bar. Uh, there's the Buell Theater, which is the 2,800-seat uh, um, roadhouse. Uh, so everything comes through there. Uh, or most most road shows come through there. We have the... Um, uh, we have Betcher Concert Hall, which is a unusual in the round concert hall for our symphony. Oh, and that's interesting. It is a strange. I've venue. never heard of that. There's a sister. There's a sister one. I can't in Germany, but I don't remember what it's called. Um, and it, yeah, so there's a choir area behind, but it can also be bench seating. But it's very big and cavernous. So uh, huh. the symphony sounds pretty cool there, but if you put something else in there, it gets really strange. Um, and then we have the Ellie Hawkins Opera House, which uh, used to be the Auditorium Theater. I worked there uh, for a little bit, and then went on tour, and then I came back, and I, uh, uh, and then I was uh, sound. My most recent job was as head of sound at that opera house okay. for uh, three years until COVID and all theater shut down. All COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you were telling me a li- you sent me a link, and you also told me a little bit about that theater. You want to, do you want to talk about how unusual that theater? Well, is? so the theater was uh, the building is a 1908 historical building uh, built in 1908. It's uh, it it was kind of a um, it 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 had many different purposes throughout the years. I think it was arena at one point, um, and 
when I started working there in uh, 97, uh, I left always Patsy Cline. I went over there and it was just the ugliest black box ever. It was about 2000 seats. Um, not very functional at all, even though, you know, that it was that big. Um, and it was painted bl- all black for cats and, and just, yeah. The Sorry, back, I, hate that so much. I, I have, I have, uh, <laughs> I've only loaded it in the inflatable version, the three, the three truck inflatable stage set version. I do not know what that means. So you'll have to come back to that. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll circle back. <laughs> yeah, circle back to that. So the auditorium had like, um, they had even convention hall type rooms in the back and it was just terrible. And, uh, they decided to gut it, uh, gut the whole building and rebuild it as this modern, interesting opera house. And, uh, it's called the Ellie Calkins opera house because Ellie Calkins, uh, you know, put in a lot, you know, put in some donations for it. Um, I, and it's just this interesting venue if you and i were talking just regular volume on the stage you could hear it all the way in the very back top wow. of the balcony, no problem um very much designed around putting an opera in and uh it's the main place for opera colorado and colorado ballet and then um they when they put it when they first put it in they said oh we're never going to do any road shows here or anything like that it's going to be very much about the opera very much about the ballet and hardly any time passed before Disney came along, waved a lot of money in their face and said, hey, we want to do the production, the pre-production of uh, Little Mermaid Broadway show here. And they said, great, <laughs> let's oh. do it. And, uh, of course, the theater wasn't designed for all of that kind of stuff because mm-hmm. when you have a road show, you have to put in all that road gear and all those weird things that happen. And uh, mm-hmm. when you have a venue like for an opera house and the like that where opera doesn't really use main speakers or things like that, there are so many different considerations. So mm-hmm. uh, it became, they, they very, they had to use, uh, they had to cut seats out of certain spaces to put the tech areas in. Uh, and then put them back later. So yeah, very quickly it got, it got put in as a certain thing and then got used for other things. And it's kind of a, it's kind of this second multi-purpose, uh, theater, but it really is made to be an opera house. Wow. I can imagine if you can hear the sound all the way in the back. Mm. Um, and I, I took ballet, so I know the sound of scraping toes, you know, I actually love that sound, but I wonder how much of that could be heard by the audience, you know, the very well, thing you're supposed to kind of hide as dancers, right? Well, they, uh, because the, the, the stage is a sprung, the, the ballet uses a sprung floor. So you really do hear them land. Uh, yeah. but the real problem becomes when you maybe have somebody backstage that's maybe not using their backstage voice oh. and you can hear it <laughs> in the audience, uh, kind of takes you out of the show a little bit. Oh, especially ballet. Yeah, well, luckily our ballet is generally very nice people, uh, so there's not a lot of anger. So you don't hear a lot of those things that you wouldn't hear. Otherwise, that you know, maybe you really don't want to hear. But wow, yeah. <laughs> wow, we were going to come back to something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that one of the things you said that for the opera they put in the they put in this. Uh, oh yeah, the Figaro system. system. Yeah. Right. So there's what is this. It, um, it again? I was talking over you. Oh no, it's, uh, the Figaro titling system is okay. uh, kind of a unique feature of this theater. In the headrests of the seats are little screens facing behind the person who's sitting in. So you're looking at a little screen in front of you, and that screen has um, the titles for the translation for an opera. 
um, rather than having them projected onto an overhead titling system or overhead screen. Um, the neat thing about that is that with this system, you can program in up to, I think it's eight languages. Uh, you can Ooh. scroll through, you can have, um, you can use it for obviously just about anything text-based. So if you have a sponsor reel, a sponsor loop of, uh, we, we would do a lot of, um, a lot of meetings and the like in this, you know, like 500, 600 person meetings. And maybe the meeting organizer wants to use the system to show sponsors. That's another use of it. Hmm. Um, but there's only like, uh, it was developed by the people at Santa Fe Opera. And I think there's only like a dozen of them out there. And unfortunately the company kind of went, I think they went under or they, or they changed. Um, so finding parts and pieces for it now is a lot more difficult than it used to be. So it may be being phased out there or hopefully phased into something different. Cause I know that they've been developing something else down there. So mm-hmm. Have yeah. you experienced it? Like, have you sat in the seats during an opera oh, or during? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I mostly, uh, uh, I, I actually worked on it for about a year uh, in between, um, in between tours. Uh, and it's, so it's, a, it's an interesting experience because it's uh, very much like, um, it's very low resolution. It's kind of a light blue thing. So it's almost like looking at a uh, computer monitor from the eighties, but it's also really unobtrusive. Uh, you can also turn it off. So if you don't want to read the, uh, if you don't want to read the subtitles as it's going, no problem. It's all up to you. So it's a nice, it's a nice tailored experience, but also of course you have a system that's 2,300 screens that, you know, are all running and hopefully all operating properly and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And after a good, you know, 12, 13 years of it being in use, you know, some parts start to act up a little bit. So yeah, you'll have a section happen. kind of go out for a little while and you have to scramble and fix it. And yeah. Hmm. I'm just wondering about the, I guess you would get used to it, but I'm like, do you miss any of the action? Cause your eyes are down on the titles. Yeah. Do people just th- adapt to it? What do you think? I think so. I think that the biggest complaint that we've had uh, has been that their screen didn't work rather than the screen is obnoxious. Um, <laughs> okay. So yeah, you know, I, I think also people come in and they see a, this interesting thing and it helps kind of sell the experience to them a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's, it is unique enough. Cool. And so um, you so you went down to the Patsy Cline Theater mm-hmm. and then what was your first big show? Because you call it um, Roadshow, which means... On tour. It's like a touring show that's yeah. Broadway, Broadway talent, right? Yeah. So I went from always Patsy Cline, basically just across the gallery, uh, across the theaters to the auditorium theater, um, and was there for about five months. Uh, we did, you know, I did Nutcracker. I did some other, a few other things that, you know, we did. And then, um, the, so I kind of had a mentor, uh, with all of this, which was great. Uh, I think that one of the problems that my craft has is that there were a lot of people who kind of. They, they didn't, there isn't much of a mentorship in my crafts and in stagecraft. Um, there's kind of this younger group coming up that's learning a lot of things, especially from the internet and the like. There's a lot of information that they can access. There's an older group that was worried about losing work to a younger group. And then there's this middle area that I was in where we didn't get that much help and direction from that, from that group and from that, uh, I, I don't want to say old guard, but from that old guard, uh, from the people who knew. And 
that became a, that kind of became a little bit of a problem, but I didn't have that problem in sound. There's just not that many people in theater. It's the newest of all of the crafts, you know, uh, lighting has been around much longer, obviously carpentry and, and building and props and hair and wardrobe, all those things have been around much longer. Um, it's almost like video is now it's kind of this newer thing that's being been integrated. And even though it's been around, sound has been around for a while within theater, uh, not nearly to the degree that Broadway musicals brought along and things like that. So there wasn't a ton of competition for the kind of jobs that I was doing. And so I had somebody who I don't know why necessarily, I I really don't, that saw something in me or something like that and kind of took me along for the ride. He didn't say, you know, Hey, I'm going to show you everything, but he really did. Um, And he got a call for to go out on the road with uh, Les Miserables to join that tour uh, as the A2. Uh, in my world, there's an A1, which is the person who's at the console and mixing and all of that, audio one. And then the A2 is the person who handles everything else. They handle everything backstage, all of the, you know, any problems during the show, things like that. Your A2 has to be the person that, that does all of that. So if a wireless microphone goes out, your A2 handles that. If somebody's comm isn't working, the A2 handles that. Um, it's, and the A1 is the person who is most is the head of audio, the person at the console. Uh, the A2 will do some of the mixing also at times, like, uh, the way it usually breaks down is if you are out on a road show, they do eight shows a week. Uh, the A1 will mix five out at the front of the house and the A2 will mix three and they basically swap positions for a little bit. So, you know, it kind of balances out a little bit. Um, and the responsibilities, you know, fall towards who they should. Um, so he got the call to go out on the road as the A2 and he didn't want to. And he said, well, I can't do it, but I know somebody who can. And he came to me and said, James, you got to call this guy. You got to call the sound designer and take this job. And I said, well, what about, what about the auditorium? And he said, forget the auditorium, go on the road, get out of here. Are you insane? I was like, okay. I mean, and the, and the problem was that I was extremely underqualified for this job. I had never loaded in or loaded out a, a, a Broadway musical from our, from our shows, uh, from our houses. I'd never worked on a Broadway musical, nothing nearly to that scale. And this wasn't even the biggest show out there. I mean, this was, this was, uh, this was 10 years or so into the tours of layman's. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, uh, when a tour starts out, you know, they put out the big lavish thing with, you know, 25 trucks of stuff and, uh, take a week to load in and blah, blah, blah. And then as the show has been out longer, they cut down the size of it so it can fit in smaller theaters. It's easier to move. It costs less to do all of that. Hmm. Um, because there's going to be another show that's going to take its place as the prestige show to get, right. you know? Um, so I, but normally as a local person, as somebody working at home, uh, you'd go in, you'd, you'd be the extra help that helps put it in when a show goes in. Uh, there's maybe 20 to 25 people on the crew, whether that's uh, wardrobe, lighting, sets, sound. And then you pick up a lot of people temporarily. And there's a whole lot of people that make those kinds of livings. And this is this is part of the problem I think we're going to talk about a bit, but uh, with COVID and the like, is that there's this whole other thing that's being infected that people don't know about. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we can get to that. Yeah. Uh, but the, um, so I ha- normally I would have had a little more experience, but I got out there and I'm like, Oh boy, I have no idea. I'd never mixed a Broadway musical before. I mean, I'd, I'd mixed music, you know, a little orchestra, things like that. I'd never mixed a Broadway show and Broadway shows 
are completely different to mix as a sound person than any other show. You know, it's, it's just absolutely completely different. Do you want to talk about what those differences are? Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, some of those differences are very technical, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, some of it's, you know, you're one of the things, for instance, let's say that I, I don't want, I don't want to bore people with inside baseball, but at the same time, it's, <laughs> I, I find it fascinating. So <laughs> let's say that you and I are doing a show, right. And we have, um, we have dialogue back and forth and then we're going to sing. Right. So I'm standing about six feet away from you and sound is very slow compared to, um, compared to light. It takes time for my voice to go to your, to, to for your, for your ears to hear. Mm-hmm. And I'm wearing a microphone and you're wearing a microphone. And so the sound from my voice goes from my mouth to my microphone, which is probably about six inches. Yep. And, uh, then my, my sound, my voice goes from my mouth to your forehead, which is where you're wearing your microphone. Cause that's where Broadway's Broadway musicals wear their microphones. Um, and that's about six feet. And when those sounds combine, there's a, that little bit of time delay adds and cancels uh, the sound together. So it sounds weird. And what it, what it winds up sounding is very thin. It's, it's called phasing. Hmm. So what happens is that the mixer out front, when you are saying your lines, I bring up your mic. And as soon as you're done, I bring up the, my mic and take away yours. So I'm constantly swapping back and forth. So if uh, if you have a line of dialogue, your mic is up, and if my I have a line of dialogue, my mic is up. But I take yours out. I can't leave them both up at the same time, and it's very mechanically different than rock and roll, where you can leave a lot of stuff up. You can only leave what's what's in use at the time up and what sounds best. So if you've ever been to a Broadway musical and you've heard like somebody starts to say something, but you don't really hear it. And then you hear it. That's called a late pickup. That's somebody, that's the sound person being a little late on those lines. And, uh, it takes you right out of the show. And it's really one of the harder parts of, um, of Broadway mixing is getting that timing. And then you're dealing with a live environment. So the person may not be as loud tonight as they were last night. They may be a little faster to talk, things like that. So there's all kinds of little, little things that, that modify that, that change it. And it's all part of the Broadway mixing world. And then, you know, you have to make it sound appropriate to the show and appropriate to the, to the moment. So, you know, you don't want it too loud. You don't want it too soft. You don't want, you know, and, and maybe if you're doing the music, you know, you have the orchestra going, so you have to mix that as well. So there's a lot of different mechanics for that. That's very different. And I knew none of that coming in. So woefully underqualified. <laughs> that sounds extremely difficult it makes me want to lay down and take a nap i just i can't even imagine like trying to get that right because i i mean i have (laughs) the idea of doing a sound check at the top of the show i'm like what does that even mean oh you know because you could be louder (laughs) next time or you have a semi malfunction on your costume while you're trying to act and your voice gets really loud all of a sudden (laughs) or something or one of the things that I was actually kind of good at with uh, Broadway shows and being the A2 uh, was being able to talk to actors about it. Uh, some sound people are really bad at that mm. and some are really good at that. And I was, I was better at it than some of the people I worked with. So sometimes like a boss would go to somebody and say, Hey, you need to be doing this. And they were, and the actor would say, what the hell? It's uh, who cares? You know, blah, blah, blah. And then I could come in behind and say, actually what he's really saying is this. So this is why this helps, you know, if you could do this and I totally understand blah, blah, blah. And, you know, kind of 
translate a little bit between mm-hmm. I need you, I need you to do this and the actor saying, but I'm doing something like that and make it <laughs> like make that. it make a little more sense. So that was that was a little bit one of my strengths for for that. Yeah, the liaison like they send they send you in as a second. I thought you had done, you hadn't done any kind of Broadway touring show at home before you went on the road. Right. You made this leap from never having done professional musical theater in that role. Not in that, not at that scale. No, not at that scale. Not even close. <laughs> yeah. Was there anybody? So the guy who said, I don't want to do this. Was he giving you some pointers? How did not you like, really. I mean, <laughs> so, well, there's kind of two parts to that. So, the, so my very first day when I showed up, I mean, I flew, I flew to, I believe it was, it was Fort Myers, Florida from Denver. And one of those flights was first class because that was the only flight cha- you know, seat available. So I was like, hey, I can live with this. And they were like, yeah, don't get used to that kid. <laughs> so nice. I show up halfway through um, the halfway through the first show of a two show day Sunday. And it's the last day. So we're going to do two shows. We're going to load out. We're going to get on a tour bus, which I've never been on a tour bus before. Uh, we're going to go to the next city, uh, which I believe was Gainesville, Florida. Uh, where I believe it, it was the Gatlin Brothers Theater, and start our load-in, which I'd never done a load-out like that. I've never done a load-in. I've never been on the tour bus, and I've never seen Les Miserables. I didn't know anything about Les Miserables. Oh, my God. So I'm jumping in completely, completely green, no idea what's going to happen. I meet my boss. He's outside. Uh, he's outside at intermission, and he says, hi, put your bags over, you know, your luggage over there. Go see company managers. And I'm like, what are company managers? And he's like, Oh no. <laughs> like he, like, he, like, like right away. I've, I've completely basically just told him, I, I don't know anything. Um, and company managers are the company representatives for a tour. So you've got your stage managers, of course, you know, they're dealing with the show. And then the company managers are the people who deal with all the business. So they're going to deal with payroll. They're going to deal with hotels. They're going to deal with the contracts. They're going to deal with all this stuff. And I go in, I meet them and the show start, act two starts and they're and we do a little bit of paperwork and get, you know, blah, blah, blah. And here's where your, here's your hotel and blah, blah, blah. And they said, why don't you go, uh, why don't you go watch the end of act two? And I'm like, great, no problem. I go in the theater and I find a seat near the back. I sit down. And as soon as I sit down, everybody in the show dies. <laughs> it, was the, it was the barricade scene and everybody dies. And I just look around like, what have I gotten myself into? Um, <laughs> I watched the end of the act. I can't pronounce half the cat, half the actors' names. I think I called Gavroche, Gavroche, and uh, rather than Snardier, it was Snardier. Um, so you didn't take French no in high school, huh? No, I failed German horribly. Um, so I went to. So I, the at, we have a second show. We go back. I go backstage. We do the backstage track. I have no idea most of what's going on. Uh, because I have no idea what the show is about or anything. Then we do loadout, which is five hours. Um, I'm a little more comfortable there because I can take notes. I'm watching the person. I'm working with the person who I'm going to replace. Um, and, uh, and this guy, great guy, Greg, who was just a teddy bear of a guy and wonderful and treated me so well. And uh, also had when he, I think, had low sugar was had a bit of a temper. So when I was nicer to people, that also helped me a little bit because it made me look a little better in that realm, but just uh, treated me so well and took care, such good care of me. Um, so we finish up our loadout. I get on the bus and I have no idea where to sleep, what to do. And they're like, okay, we'll, we'll walk <laughs> you through everything. You know, they can tell I'm scared. Aww. Uh, and, uh, they, they taught they, you know, 
here's, this is your bunk. This is where you keep things. Uh, make sure that you sleep with your feet towards the front of the bus, not the back of the bus. Yeah, that's that a, that like is a thing. Is. You've never heard of that? No, no. Is that a that is a, that is a real thing. This happened to uh, Gloria Esteban. Uh, her, she, um, so if you're sleeping with your head towards the front of the bus, if anything's going to happen with the bus, they're going to have to jam on the brakes. Right. And that means that you're going to slide head first into the wall um, of your bunk and hurt your neck. Mm. Sleep with your feet first. And then you won't damage your neck if something happens. Because the worst that really can happen the other way is that they speed up a little, you know, they step on the gas really hard. You're not lurching forward. So it's more of a safety thing. So a little inside tip if you're ever on tour in a wow. sleeping bunk, sleep feet first. <laughs> um, yeah. So. And then we go to, we, we got to Gainesville and, uh, and I took more notes and I learned, uh, I, I had a moment where I taped a cable very badly and got kind of told off about it. Wow. And, uh, and. And at first I was like, oh, that jerk. And I was like, nope, they're right. I'm, I'm in learning mode here. I got to, you know, do that. It's so, all about safety, right? And, and things not malfunctioning. And Well, it is. And it's all about making, you know, working with professional people that, that have certain expectations. And, right. and um, you know, that and, and all of these things really contributed to me becoming a professional and kind of having that. Um, I kind of had what I, what, what I call that come to Jesus moment, like five months later, um, we were in, uh, where were we? We were in, uh, uh, Macon, Texas, no, Macon, Georgia, sorry, Macon, Georgia. And, uh, we were at, the, we we're finishing the, we were finishing up for the night, uh, after a show and I was kind of stumbling along. I wasn't really, I wasn't really doing great. Uh, I was doing fine backstage, but I wasn't learning how to mix the show very well. Uh, I wasn't investing enough and I didn't really know what those things meant. Um, I was still in that in over my head, you know, stage. And, um, my boss kind of sat me down in the parking lot and said, look, you need to get it together or you're going home. It's that simple. And I just, I, and you know, he wasn't, he wasn't mean or anything about it, but he was pretty honest about it. And, uh, and he left and I sat there for a while and I just, and I said to myself, you know, you got, you got two choices. You go home and you never do this again because that's probably what's going to happen. Or, uh, you, you become a professional right now, you know, you invest and you do it. Uh, and that was the choice I made. And, uh, you know, as much as I didn't like that conversation, it was the conversation that needed to be had with me to make me into a professional. And uh, I'm so grateful that we had that. Wow. I guess we all have those come to Jesus moments, don't we? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I, well, I think, I, I think that we kind of hope so, you know, there, there, there are people that never do and yeah. never understand what they can contribute or what they can't contribute to what they do. Mm-hmm. And I, I needed that talk at that time. I was 20, I was 25 years old. Um, I was, we were going to can't, we were going to Toronto for six months to, sit at the princess of Wales theater and our Valjean was leaving and we were getting, uh, Colm Wilkinson, who was the guy who originated the role, uh, in, you know, absolutely originated the role. So, you know, big deal. Um, and especially for us, because this was the 10th anniversary tour. Uh, we were, you know, we'd been out for a while. Um, it was eight, eight trucks at this point, uh, packed very tightly. Um, but you know, this was a, this was a big deal and I really wasn't ready for it. And I kind of left, uh, there were two other sound guys, uh, the A1 and another A2 and, uh, you know, the head and, and another assistant. And, uh, I was, I was pretty much leaving them in the lurch. I was doing a bad job and 
they were having to make up the slack for me. Mm. And that wasn't fair to them. Uh, it, I, I could have done better, but I wasn't doing better. Um, and yeah, I just, I needed to really professional up. And so it was a, it was, it was, it was a slap in the face, but it was the slap I needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you know what you needed to do or were you still kind of in the dark? I think it was pretty obvious to me at the time that there were things that I was not, that I was not doing. I didn't necessarily always know how to do them. But um, there were two other people that were doing the job and I knew that I should be learning better or learning, you know, learning faster or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a little bit of an injury. Uh, at one point we had a, a, there was a little accident on a loadout that kind of hurt my shoulder, uh, made it hard for me to, to learn how to, to mix the show because uh, of those subtle moves that were very, uh, it seems very hand oriented, but actually, you know, the shoulder was in use for it. And I kind of had to sit out about three weeks of learning how to mix the show, but there were other things that I could have done that I was slacking on. Um, so, so it really came down to, I, I probably knew better. I was surfing a bit. Um, and I should have done better, mm-hmm. but, uh, the, having that talk and realizing that, you know, really finding out that, Hey, this matters. This is the part that matters. Um, yeah, if I can digress for just a sec, uh, yeah. my, uh, my niece was doing theater for a little while and, uh, she's never going to hear this, so it's okay. Um, tell me she, everything. <laughs> yeah, well, so she was pretty, you know, she was pretty good actress. Uh, but when it came time to audition for a show, she didn't do her paperwork before doing the audition and therefore didn't get a, a good part. And be, and what it really was, was this is a group effort. And if you're not going to do your part, then everybody else is waiting for you. And that's not fair to everybody else. It's much, you know, it's why people show up on time and are early for theater things because, there is there, you know, on tour, there's a hundred people there. And if I don't show up and if I don't do my job, then that's 99 people that are waiting for me to do my job and I'm failing them as much as I'm failing myself. So that it's, that was, I kind of needed to realize that at the time, because before that, when you have a smaller scale, you have the people around you and maybe some of them are not telling you, or some of them are making or helping you out, or maybe you're helping somebody else out, or you just don't see uh, what you're really doing. And that's kind of where I was at. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it had a big impact on you and you turned it around. Did it take a long time to kind of get up to snuff? Not, not really. Um, after that, uh, we had to stop. Uh, I had to stop learning how to mix the show because we were going into, um, we were going into Canada and we were going to have Colm Wilkinson and all of that. And so it was because it was a big deal. My learning had to kind of slow down. Uh, with that, but it allowed me to invest in other parts. And so I, and I really did, you know, I threw myself more into the backstage, really getting into the nitty gritty of things and making things run efficiently and run well. Um, so I think it helped take some of the slack of other things up that I wasn't doing and, and took those things away from those guys, mm-hmm. from the other two sound people. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when we left, uh, when we left Canada, we had one of the sound, guy, the other assistant sound guy left and we had a new guy come in and uh, he was much more in over his head than I was. So I wound up picking up a ton of slack and I kind of saw the other side of it, you know, got, got a little taste of my own medicine in a way. Um, and unfortunately he never really turned it around. So oh. uh, it didn't work out as well for him. Um, 
But being the person who was on both sides of that uh, taught me a lot going forward. And, you know, being able to see that, you know, I, I was the failure and then I was the success and having to deal with somebody else's failure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, Yeah. I think, I think that there was a certain amount of honesty that I had to have with myself. Otherwise it was just going to end. And I don't know how that works with, you know, the other side of things with the acting side of of the world, because there's so much that feels arbitrary when dealing with the acting side of the world for actors. If somebody doesn't like your audition or you have the wrong hair color or they're kind of hungry that day or, you know, all the things that are so out of your control as an actor and doesn't apply as much to the backstage part. So uh, I, I don't know how people in the acting field can have those moments uh, and correct and make it work that way in such a, you know, I kind of had a linear fashion with that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it, maybe that's just being on the outside of the acting world and not really knowing it. That's true. You, um, if you don't look right, you know, if you don't look right in your picture, you won't get, you know, you won't even get a chance to audition. I don't know what it's like on the professional side. I know it's a, there's a little bit more latitude in some ways in like community theater, you know, you're going to take the best that you can, but there's a lot of like, if that person's worked with you before, cause you know, it's, there's, they're not getting paid, but there's still a lot writing on how well somebody does in a show. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's it seems pretty, so arbitrary. It, yeah. And, I, the, I heard a story about, uh, do you watch Schitt's Creek or have you seen the show or heard of it? Or I've only seen a little bit of okay. it. Okay. If you get past like halfway into the season, you might fall in love with that. I did. Um, and it just gets better and better, um, which is nice. But there, the young woman who plays the sister came into audition and they're like, she's perfect, except her hair's the wrong color. And they couldn't seem to, one of them couldn't get past that. I'm like, she can dye her hair. Like he yeah. couldn't get past, you know, that her hair was like brown and they wanted her to be more blonde, even though she was perfect in every other respect. So luckily somebody talked that person around and. Oh yeah. Got the part. You never know what's going to be what somebody can do. Also, we had, uh, we had for our Eponine for a while, we had Sutton Foster who's really, you know, yeah. Who's Tony award winner now. You know, two-time Tony Award winner for Best Actress in Musical, uh, Thoroughly Modern Million. I forget what the other one was. Um, Sutton, Sutton's awesome. She was so nice. She's so cool. But this was before, uh, you know, before her she big was, break in. Yeah, Thoroughly and now, Modern you know, and, Yeah. Oh yeah, and and can you imagine? You know, her singing on my own. I mean, that last note was she just nailed it. It was stunning. It was wow. so good every night, and she was just so cool to work with. So. You know, you never know. Yeah. So I listen to shows and sometimes I can't stop listening to them over and over again. And then mm-hmm. I have trouble sleeping at night because they play in my head. And that term is called an earworm. You, I'm sure mm-hmm. you've heard of that. Did you have any problems with that? It's cyclical. You know, it, uh, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about it a bit, but Les Mis, I, mean, I only did about a thousand shows of Les Mis, <laughs> which, yeah, I know. It seems like a ton. And yet... I did, I think, gosh, probably around 5,000 of Lion, of Lion King. So, wow. you know, it's, it, it's very cyclical. It gets stuck. Something will get stuck in your head for a while and then it'll, then it'll fall out and you don't, you don't even notice. And then it gets back in again and then you, and then it falls out again. So it's, it's, uh, it gets, there are parts that of, there are parts that I never, ever want to hear again of layman's, <laughs> you know, if I, the, the, uh, near end of act one 
uh, before the big song, uh, just drove me nuts and bored me to death. <laughs> but also at the same time, you know, one of the great, one of my favorite, absolute favorite parts of musical theater is uh, transitioning into Paris, uh, which the new version where they don't have the turntable and it's a little more, more set, more things. Uh, I don't think it does as good a job mm. as the the version I worked, which had the turntable and all of that. Because um, because it was this very small little moment, and then it transitions into Paris ten years later, and there's this swell and the lighting change and the set and the music and everything works in concert together that just hits you right in the chest in just the right way, mm-hmm. and it's 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 a near perfect moment in theater, but it takes all the elements for that. Yeah, and I could I could see that day in day out, no problem. I always got excited to when that part was coming up and it was just always my favorite part to do. And then we'd get to what they call the attack on Rue Plumet, you know, which is not shortly after that, where Tenardier is trying to get into Valjean's uh, property uh, through a gate. And I just kind of tune out. <laughs> it's just so dull. Like, like, what do I have to do next? Can I just pretend not to hear what's going on? Yeah. I guess you can't. And now, uh, now it's the, uh, Les Mis then was three hours and 25 minutes when it was with the intermission. Now it's just under three hours. Uh, they cut out about 25 minutes of stuff. Wow. Uh, and they left the entire attack on Rue Plumet, which I was just like, why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> this was your one chance. <laughs> we just do it with puppets when they notice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can we, just, can we just have a summary? Like put a slide up that says, and this happened. And now better stuff. No, like now. just super titles. We don't, we don't need to see it. <laughs> <laughs> how girls walk across the stage with a little placard. Yeah. You know? And then- it was interesting because I saw the, uh, the, I worked it when it came through Denver, the, the redo of it. Um, and I went out for my favorite parts of the show to see what it was like. Cause I was working, I was working backstage. I had the opportunity. I would go out and I'd watch and I'd be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> nice. It just wasn't as fun. It wasn't as interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Les Mis is like, at the time, and for a long time, I think it was really huge. That's the thing with, with theater. It's become very spectacle in order to bring in the tourists. Mm-hmm. But some of those shows, I'm not honestly big on the giant show. I do really like Wicked, but I really like the music. Like, I knew the music before I went to see the show. And when, by the time I saw it, I was so far back. There's all kinds of monkey stuff I missed that I can't see. <laughs> it's back. <laughs> All kinds of monkey stuff. The flying monkey. Do you want to sit in the section that can see all the monkey stuff? Yes. Or would you prefer to sit in the section that's maybe a little less monkey stuff? No, How do you feel about monkey stuff in your musicals? <laughs> I just want to make sure that you have the right experience of monkey stuff. They didn't Wicked, <laughs> Wicked is one of those shows that actually stagehands like, that stagehands look forward to coming in, really? you know, coming through because it's that, yeah. And there's a lot of shows that are kind of like, oh, this again, that again. Oh, another reboot of that. Right. Uh-huh. right. But it's one of those shows that that stagehands say, hey, Wicked's coming. That's going to be pretty cool because <laughs> it's a good show. It's yeah. it's technically interesting, but also it's it's just a well-done show. Yeah, and, I thought so. You know, yeah, these days I think there's yeah there's a handful to me that aren't kind of harkening back to that classic Broadway and trying to kind of make that interesting mm-hmm. or or hook into that that interest. Um, we did the uh, I did the uh, pre the production stop 
the first stop of the tour of uh, Book of Mormon in Denver, and uh, just as a local person. And what a phenomenally written show. That show is all about its writing. And then, you know, the next things that you see are all these reboots, you know, and then, and then it takes until Hamilton comes along and it's, here's a phenomenally written show. And these shows that are so well done are the ones that are written well, that invested so much into their writing. Uh, Lame is at the time was like that. It was, it was Mm -hmm. a game changer because it was sung through. Um, It was, you know, I think that there, I think we counted a total of six lines that are spoken in the show. Yeah. And that's it. It's you know, basically everything, everything an opera. I mean, I know they call it an absolutely, opera, yeah, really. Oh, and it felt opera length. It was three hours and twenty five minutes. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, the you classic musicals with... are really long. They're like three hours long. With right. Well, if you think about it, so three hours and twenty five minutes of show, we had uh, we had about five minutes of picking up things afterwards and then getting out of the building. And when you and the crew shows up an hour and a half before the show to test everything, make sure everything works. So just the show itself is five hours to work. Wow. Do that eight times a week. That's there's your 40 hours a week of a regular job. But this was at a time when Les Mis was moving every week and load in would take from noon to uh, either 11 PM or midnight. If it was going a little slow on a Monday. Wow. So there's another 10, 11 hours. Uh, the next day we'd be back at 8 AM and sometimes we'd have to go through just depending on how, how fast or slow things were going. So there's another eight or nine hours. And then the loadout was, if everything was going well, five hours of loadout. So you're talking about 65 hours a week of lame, you know, of work every week for, for if you're moving the show. Yeah. So so the audience members like, my God, this show's long. And everybody backstage is like, oh <laughs> You God, have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Whole other world. Yeah. Wow. If you love what you're doing and it sounds completely mm-hmm. absorbing. And it's because it demands that. Oh, and it was great for stamina building. Like my next, uh, my the next tour I did was Annie Get Your Gun. I think that's what, maybe two and a half hours with intermission. I mean, it's not a, not a long show. No. By the time that show was done, I was like, oh, great. Let's go, let's go do something else. Or, <laughs> let's <laughs> no go. Let's go to the bar. No, no. <laughs> no. Well, that is, uh, yeah, that, that, so the, the, as I know that you're, uh, I, I listened to one of your interviews, uh, from another episode and they said, well, you know, what do you do afterward after the show? You go to the bar and talk about blah, blah, blah. And that's great with community theater. But when you ever, when six days a week, you're doing the show, yeah, you don't go to the and, bar, you go home. <laughs> well, a lot, too many people do because uh, you're living out of a hotel. The hotel has a bar. Everything else is closed. You're winding down from work, and your social, a- you know, your social avenue is the hundred people that you tour with. And so people congregate at the bar, and obviously that can lead to drinking problems for people, things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and so and so we, you know, you, I didn't really see a lot of problems. Uh, but also at the same time, you know, I could see the habits from people forming with that. And it's like, ah, uh, there was a time when it was like, okay, that was fun. And now it's time to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. Even when you go on vacation, this is nothing like vacation. That's work. But the hotel, Mm. being in a hotel gets so old so fast. You know, I remember years ago, somebody said, oh, wouldn't it be exciting to travel for work? I would never want to travel for work. What you did probably is the closest thing I'd be willing to do to travel for work. 
Well, and at the time there was like this whole thing of like the road warriors, the people who were, you know, the business people who go from flight to flight and all of that. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, come live Ugh. our life for a while. It's yeah, you get to you get to go home. You have a home. You know, we were, uh, you know, 50, 52 weeks a year was, you know, was a show. We usually took about two weeks, three weeks vacation a year. Um, and if we took a vacation, usually that meant going home, you know, and yeah. seeing our friends and stuff rather than the other way around. Right. Um, you know, and, and on Les Mis, uh, we pretty much, we lived out of hotels all the time. Uh, later on when I was doing a show that was minimum of four weeks in a city, we'd get a, apartments. Uh, so it was a lot nicer in that regard, but also a lot more spread out. Um, usually the way it works on tour is, uh, you get a per diem. So you have a certain amount of money a day that's by contract and you pay for your own housing out of that. Oh. The, um, the housing, usually there's two options that the company managers, uh, who run the business side, they'll find those, uh, two options for you. And usually what it is, is like, you know, there'll be a holiday in and a Hyatt or something like that, you know, and because, and they'll get kind of a group discount. Like if we have this many people here, your rate's going to be lower. Mm -hmm. And, and then if you don't want those two options, if you want to do something else, you can do that. So if you want to get a beach house with four actors for the week, you can do that if you can find it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was 1988 to 2000. So there was no Airbnb. Uh, you know, so it was easy. You know, it was very easy. And when you're doing one weekers, you don't want to find housing every week for yourself. You you look at the options and go, okay, I'll take this one. And the company managers would book it. So, you know, it was a, it was a little bit different, but yeah, you're constantly living out of the hotel, you know, um, to make sure I was never late for that morning, wake up for the second day of load in, um, because we'd start at 8am, but we maybe have finished at midnight the night before I would always do, um, if there was a, a restaurant, I would always do room service for breakfast that morning because somebody's knocking on your door. <laughs> was, oh, you, yeah. you would plan I, it ahead of time? So, oh, absolutely. Oh, that's Five, a great uh, idea. Wake up yeah. call and food. I do, I do a wake up call. I had my cell phone uh, and an alarm clock that had two alarms and usually the um, uh, the whatever alarm clock they had there. So I would set five alarms for that morning. I I, I I really take being on time seriously and because, <laughs> because I've, because I've been on the other end of that, uh, where somebody showed up two and a half hours late to second day of load in. It was like, Ooh, Oh, did they still have their oh. job at the end of the day? <laughs> yeah, probably because they needed them. Yeah, but, it was, uh, it was pretty bad. It was a bad situation. Wow. So I, I never wanted to be that person. I think I was late once. And when I showed up, I was, I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they're like, you're never late. Don't worry about it. You know, I kind of earned that equity, but yeah, yeah, I took it very seriously. (laughs) Wow. I just loved being backstage. I think I liked being Mm. in a theater more than I liked being on stage. Being on stage was the price I had to pay to (laughs) to hang out with every, which sounds really strange because when I was a kid, I dreamed of being a Broadway star, but you know, it's a whole lot different in your head than having to memorize lines and yeah. I was sitting on stage during a show and then I was looking at the person I was having a scene with and I was staring him at him for a little while and going, what is he going to say? And then I realized it was my line. I had gone up as we say. <laughs> and when I Some got, people do that too. <laughs> I took like a little mental vacation, didn't realize it. Oh, the day before, um, the day before I was supposed to go on vacation in 
we were in Washington, D.C. We were there for nine weeks at the National Theater, which is, uh, it's just a postage stamp of a stage. It's so tiny, but it's a great old theater. And I've been, I think it's been like six months since my last time off and I'm a little crispy and I'm a little tired and I, it's, it's the last show before vacation. And we get to the big battle scene where everybody's going to get shot and, um, we have all we have the gunshot sound effects and all that. And during this, I'm supposed to fire three cannon shots and, uh, I'm mixing along and I'm watching the stage and, uh, Ozra Ross is up there and the music comes to da, 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 da. And I just think, when are they going to fire the cannon shot? Oh, that's my job. Oh no. <laughs> and I hit the cannon shot late and he's already falling. And we have, um, to be able to keep out, you know, keep time or what, or get cued for things for certain sound effects. We have a conductor cam shot. The conductor has a camera right in front of him. It goes backstage and it comes out to the sound console. So I can always watch him. And I fire the cannon shot. I look at the conductor and the conductor just does this gesture at the camera like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And then we finish, we finish and everything's quiet, of course. And, you know, and then the music just starts and my comm light starts flashing, which means that the audio guy from backstage wants to talk to me. And I know what's coming. And I pick up the phone and he says, so you're shooting the, you're shooting the cannon at the guy who lost his balance. What's going on, Beth? I'm like, I know, I know. So yeah, we go up on lines too. <laughs> I think that must be so challenging to be with a show that long. It can be. I mean, there was, there was an actor on Les Mis who I think by the time I'd been there, I, I'm pretty sure he'd started the tour. So he'd been in the same role as Tenardier for like 10 years. Oh my and, God! How does anybody uh, on Lion that? King, I think our Pumbaa did sixteen years before closing wow. for the COVID thing, um, but it also it becomes its own problem. Like, uh, so lame is we get a new guy in and uh, new actor, and everybody who comes in, it's always like the first six weeks is like, oh my God, it's my favorite show, and I'm so excited, and blah blah blah, you know, because the longer a show is out, um, the l- the more the the more name actors want to go do something new, and so you start working through these actors, then these, then these, and blah blah blah. So, um, so the talent, the so the person who comes in and they're like, I'm really excited about this, and that lasts about six weeks, and then they kind of realize, oh, I have a little, I'm, there's a little bit of cog in the machine kind of thing, you know, I have to do these things, blah blah blah. It's a lot less acting and creative. It's more that I have to do these things, and that's you know that's great. That's fine. You're doing Broadway. It's eight shows a week and you're, you're there for the audience, you know, not just you, but, um, he, I think it's about his third weekend and we're at, uh, the Tenardier's cafe is doing a song master of the house and songs going. And this guy comes up and he's chatting with us backstage, you know, and just sitting there and, and right before, right after this is, is like the biggest sound move backstage. Um, the, uh, I'll, I'll digress for just a moment. Uh, so in today's modern world, uh, every actor has a microphone and every m- actor has a wireless transmitter. And when I was doing Les Mis, there wasn't the bandwidth, there wasn't the wireless technology to give everybody one microphone and one transmitter. Everybody had their own wire, but they didn't have a transmitter. And so we had 18 transmitters 
in play in the show, but we had a cast of like 40, 45 or whatnot. So the part of the job of the backstage person was to move these microphones around from person to person, depending on what the scene was, what was happening. Uh, the joke was if somebody died in the show, their, their transmitter got taken off of them and put somewhere else. Cause you know, right. Eponine doesn't need one anymore after she's been shot. So, <laughs> right. you know, we, we give it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was part of my job. Tenardier's in everything. Like there's, there were like 11 microphone swaps that happened at this, after that scene. And I'm just sitting there waiting for this to happen, you know, and, and uh, you kind of get the mechanics of it and all that. And this guy comes up and he's like, Oh, it's fun being out here. Blah, 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 blah. And I just stopped and I listened. I said, aren't you supposed to be on stage right now? And he was the second traveler. He was the person who was supposed to come in and, and Tenardier is like, welcome, monsieur, sit yourself down. And um, obviously I'm not a singer. So he, and, and he's like, Oh no. And he runs. Well, it's too late. And the, the guy playing Tenardier who'd been doing it for like 10 years, he didn't know how to improvise or anything at that point. It was just mechanical at that point. So he turned, it starts to turn into this weird French clown act where oh it's God. just getting so strange and, and, and absurd. He's like, Oh, let's look over here. Here's oh no. a bag. No. And the music's going and I'm looking at the conductor camera and the conductor's like, what are we <laughs> doing? What's and, was, oh and we get off stage the the scene ends and everybody is halfway between dying laughing and afraid to laugh because they know the guy's going to be furious. And oh. the part of this, this mic change is that we, because the next thing that happens is 10 years later. Um, so everybody's off stage and they're kind of giggling and he's still on stage and he, cause he's got to do a little bit more scene to, for the, what they call the bargain when Cosette is bought by Valjean for, uh, you know, away from the tire days. And, uh, and the next thing that happens is he comes off stage and we have a quick change because it's 10 years later. We do a, a costume change, the rattier clothes. Uh, his hat goes away with a wig that's now grayer. And so I have to do a microphone swap with that. And I'm just like, oh, no. Oh, no. This is going to be just terrible. And uh, the, the actor kind of comes up right before this and he's like, I need to apologize to him. I'm like, you need to go away. <laughs> you need to walk away right now. We have a thing. This is not the time. Right, right. Just go away. And he did, you know, thankfully. Later. <laughs> and the uh, and the actor came off and he was just like, and, and we go through the change and he's, you know, he's quiet. And we're all very professional in this change because it is a fast thing. The, the wardrobe person has to do a thing, then I do a thing, the actor does a thing. We all do a thing in a, in a sequence to make sure that this thing happens as fast as possible, as well as possible. And uh, and as soon as we were pretty much done, he's like, well, that was interesting. And then he goes off. And I was like, <laughs> everybody thought he was going to be furious and it was fine. <laughs> Be professional, like, yeah, right, professional. It was, it was interesting. <laughs> I have to admit that a part of me really likes it when things go wrong on stage mm-hmm. because honestly, sometimes those are the freshest, most interesting things that happen in the whole show. I mean, that was kind of the time when I, when things would get so there, there's like, there's the fear of things going wrong. And then there's the professionalism of handling things when they go wrong. Mm-hmm. And then there's the boredom that you, when you, until you, and you hope that something goes wrong. And when I hit that point, it's time to leave the tour. You know, it's, it's like when, when it becomes like, oh, this went wrong. Okay. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And, and, you know, it just becomes this kind of, mm, you know, cause things will go wrong. It's, it's live theater. Right. Everything can go wrong and you never know where, where or why. Right. Uh, 
so with Lion King, uh, the 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 rock, it's basically a rolling, moving staircase, and it's it's two motors and a wireless network at its very you know basic is is what you could boil it down to, and and then a lot of wood around it and stuff, and um, so these two motors run off of off of a controller from somewhere else, but through a Wi-Fi network basically, and uh, for a while at the top of the show, uh, we would have we. We'd always test it. It would always test fine. And then we get to the top of the show and we lose connection with the, with the rock. And it was like, what is going on? It was, you know, it was a terrible time for this. I mean, this is when it's going to be playing. And it took a while to figure out that uh, the wireless network that they were using was on the same wireless network channel as almost every wireless network defaults to. So, what, so they would get interference from the ticket takers out front. And their network that their scanners would be on. Oh, my God. And when they finally figured that out and changed the channel of that uh, wireless network, things cleared up. And then there was another um, – we had two uh, tours out at the same time, basically. And then uh, – well, they, we had two sets going. So you would leapfrog sets. You'd set up one, play it, and then at the last week of the of that city, they, we'd have an advanced set that would start setting up in the next city. And then you just, we'd leapfrog things. So we had like, I think it was 11 trucks of duplicate set and then like four or five trucks of uh, costumes, uh, work boxes, things that couldn't be duplicated. So um, one of the sets, they would have the rocks, the rock would be shutting down uh, at, at night. You know, for, for last show, we didn't know why. We didn't know why they were losing connection. We had a microwave that was interfering with it in the uh, hair room. And if the hair room was too close and they were, they were heating up towels in the microwave and they turn on the microwave, it would interfere with the Wi-Fi signal. They would lose the rock. So, you know, and that would affect the show. Of course, it's just, you never know. You never know. That's really weird. It was weird. (laughs) You just never knew. Oh my God. It's heartening to hear these kinds of stories because you think the kind of stuff that happens in community theater just happens in community theater. And you think it's, so yeah. weird no. <laughs> it's not it's just on a bigger scale <laughs> yeah it happens you know? it happens everywhere to everyone and it's you know yeah, it's, it's a bigger scale but it's also just you know more complicated things yeah. means more things that go wrong yeah you know, the, anything with a moving part can break anything that goes wireless can be interfered with and mm-hmm. broadway shows they they do their best to have backups and all that but there's only so much you can do yeah my gosh so why did you leave Les Mis? Did you get burned out or you got another offer or? I was a little burned out. Yeah, um, needed a break. And I was doing a little work in uh, with North Carolina Theater, uh, designing a couple of shows. It was just very low level musical design kind of thing. Mm. Um, it was just, it was, it was fun, but it was also at that point, I didn't know what was next, but I was kind of like, I'm a, I'm a little fried on, on Les Mis. And I thought it was just time to kind of move on mm-hmm. um we were actually at the current theater in uh in san francisco oh. for my last uh my last shows there oh really and uh it was fine what were you here uh, for it was uh les mis it was in 2000 oh you did let me at the current i might have seen yeah. it i haven't seen <laughs> les mis for a long time and it's not one of my favorite shows so i don't like listen to it while i'm cooking that's okay <laughs> i did just listen to city of angels I don't listen to any musicals almost any time <laughs> unless I'm working them. I just usually. Not. That makes sense to me. Yeah. A busman's holiday. It's not 
probably fun for you to do that. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I really enjoy mixing musicals. I love being a part of the whole thing and it's really where the art is for me, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I don't go to them very much at all. I don't, it does. I I don't want to see them. I think that a lot of them are just kind of, I don't want to say boring, but they're, but they almost, uh, so many of them have like the similar choreography and things like that. Yeah. Um, if you don't, you really have to get out some, I remember carousel came through Denver and halfway we hit intermission and the person I was with, we looked at each other and we're like, you want to go to Taco Bell? (laughs) Yeah, let's get out of here. You know, it was just, it was just, our ballet does uh, Dracula every so often. They kind of started here and it's a phenomenal show. I watch that. Heck yeah. It's really cool, but it's very classic. I've never heard of that. It's so good. Oh, wow. Yeah. There are some parts of it that are just really creepy. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. It's very much the classic Dracula. Uh-huh. You know, not the it's it's not super stylized. It's very much follows the you know, the very the original story, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the original characters and how they're portrayed and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there is a scene, an act two, there's a dance uh with Lucy and Dracula that's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh I think it's I believe the there's a it's just cello and bass. Uh, hmm. And the music is just is phenomenal. It was so amazing. And then there's a spotlight that's just a headshot on her, and nothing, no one else. You know, there's it's very dark at that point, so you see him, but you don't really see him. You you know, you, you see more feel his, him, in his face, yeah. And and so he's kind of doing. It's kind of like the 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 hypnotist seduction kind of part. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's just it's so it's so good. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> and stuff like that I could see all day, every day. But yeah, most, you know, if you if you said that uh, "Kiss Me, Kate" was coming through, I'd be like, yeah, fun. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, geeks! Thanks for hanging out with us. This concludes part one of my two-part interview with James Graylian. Check out part two, the next episode following this one. You've also been listening to Scott Joplin's The Strenuous Life from 1902, generously provided here by Ragnar Helsbong's wonderful website, ragsrag.com. Share the love by giving us an awesome review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And please pass the show around to your friends and family. And remember to subscribe here wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm your host, Heather Morrison. See you next time on Geeks in the Green Room.